Our text this morning, where I will now tell the truth, <laughs> Jeremiah chapter 31, we're going to look at the entire chapter, verses 1 through 40. Open your Bible there, or navigate on your tablet or your cell phone so that you can follow along. The topic, God illustrates his everlasting love by showing how he continually draws you to himself. The title of our message, Our God is a Drawsome God. I'm sorry, I, it's, it's a habit. Anyway, let's pray. Father, we're here really for one purpose, and that is to glorify you, to bring glory to you in a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, we would see, Lord, how to bring glory to you, why we would want to do that, and, and in every way, Lord, be those people that are, subservient and submissive to your will for our lives. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and all who agreed said amen. A group of kids, age four through eight, dangerous group by the way, uh, were asked this question, what does love mean to you? Here are three of their answers, three of my favorite answers. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and they smell each other. essentially true. <laughs> love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Yeah, never been to in and out obviously. And this is my favorite. I let my big sister pick on me because my mom says she only picks on me because she loves me. So I pick on my baby sister because I love her. You see how that gets passed on. In the classic awful movie, Love Story, love meant what? Never having to say you're sorry, yes. Paul McCartney saying, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. I have no idea what any of those things mean. <laughs> it's clear love is hard to define and it means different things to different people. God will say in our text, it's in verse three, I have loved you with an everlasting love. If human love is hard to define and means different things to different people, it stands to reason it would be even harder to grasp God's love and harder still to grasp what he means by everlasting love. But God wants us to grasp his everlasting love and he gives us enough of his illustration in his dealings with the nation of Israel so that we can. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, since God's love for you is everlasting, he's determined to draw and keep on drawing you to himself. And number two, since God's love for you is everlasting, he desires to fill and keep on filling you with himself. Let's take a look first of all in verses one through 26 at God drawing you. Now, we're going to be able to look back at all God's dealings with his people, the Jews, and see him drawing them. No matter what they did, no matter how far they strayed, he kept on drawing them back to himself. This drawing is the heart of what is meant by everlasting love. And so verse one, at the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel and they shall be my people. 
Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when I went to give Israel rest. Now the Lord could be talking about the original exodus of the Jews from Egypt, but most likely these verses are about the northern kingdom of Israel, which had already been taken captive by the Assyrians about 100 years prior to this. Some survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness as the Lord gave them rest. And so although God brought this terrible judgment against them, nevertheless, a remnant was saved that he drew back to himself. Then in verse three, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Of old is a way of saying that God's nature doesn't change from age to age. Love, everlasting love, is how he relates to his people. What kind of love lets Israel be overrun by the Assyrians? God saw that they needed to be disciplined or all of them would be lost. They had abandoned him. He would draw them back to himself with loving kindness. Loving kindness here means both patience and mercy. Certainly God was patient with Israel for many, many decades, even centuries, as they sinned against him and he kept calling them back to himself. And it was merciful when he stepped in to discipline them before it was too late to save them. Even though when you're dealing with nations, the discipline is another nation coming against you, God was both patient and merciful in his loving kindness towards Israel. You know, God can't win for losing, really, in terms of most people's minds. Uh, Habakkuk is the great example of this, but you find it in every generation. Habakkuk looked at his own people and he said, God, you have got to do something. We're blowing it. There's sin over here and injustice over here and oppression over here and iniquity over here. And he said, why don't you do something? And so, first of all, people look at God and say, God, why aren't you doing something? You're God, after all. You're omnipotent and you're omnipresent, so, so do something. And then God says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Habakkuk, I'm going to bring the Babylonian army to invade you and discipline you. And Habakkuk says, yeah, don't do that. You've got, there's gotta be something else you can do. Why are you doing that? And so God, no matter where you are in the equation, before or after God acts, it's always God's fault, from that human perspective. And in reality, God is always working to draw men to himself and to draw his children back to himself. Listen as God describes the effect of his discipline to ultimately draw Israel back to the land and to a place of blessing. In verse four, he says, I will build you and you shall be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. You shall again be adorned with your tambourines and shall go forth in the dances of those who rejoice. Now remember, he's talking here about a people who had been utterly destroyed as a nation a hundred years prior. Israel had been guilty of what we might call serial spiritual adultery, yet God sees her in the future as a virgin. Everlasting love extends grace and it brings cleansing and healing. Yes, it was harsh, but it was a severe mercy to save Israel and be certain that they would endure to the end. Now, verse five, 
You shall yet plant vines on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and eat them as ordinary food. For there shall be a day when the watchman will cry on Mount Ephraim, Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the ends of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and the one who labors with child together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping and with supplications. I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off and say, he who scattered Israel will gather him. And keep him as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and has ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Therefore they shall come and sing in the height of Zion, streaming to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and new wine and oil for the young of the flock and of the herd. Their souls shall be like a well-watered garden and they shall sorrow no more at all. Then shall the virgin rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their mourning to joy. I will comfort them and make them rejoice rather than sorrow. I will satiate the soul of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, says the Lord. Now Ephraim here is just shorthand for all of the 10 northern tribes that compro, uh, comprised Israel when the nation split right after the time of Solomon. This restoration of Israel that we just read about, it's looking beyond our own day and age. It's looking to the kingdom of God after our age, after the seven-year great tribulation. It's looking to really the return of Jesus Christ in his second coming. It is certain to happen, and God's everlasting love will continue to draw Israel throughout human history until she inherits that promised kingdom. Verse 15, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Ramah was a town five miles north of Jerusalem. It was often a staging point for foreign invasions of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was picturing the weeping of the women of the northern kingdom as they watched their children being carried into exile around 722 BC. You and I recognize these verses from the Gospel of Matthew because they're quoted there at the time Herod sends out the edict to kill all the small infants seeking to destroy Jesus who was born king of the Jews. The pain of those mothers in Ramah who watched their sons being carried into exile was expressed in the cries of the mothers of Bethlehem who cradled their sons' lifeless bodies in their arms. Verse 16, thus says the Lord, refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. As the women of Israel wept for their exiled children, God offered a word of comfort. There was hope in the far future because their descendants would ultimately return to their own land. Now again, you and I read this and we say, what, what comfort is there for a mother who is losing her son to say that thousands of years in the future, 
uh, Israel will be a nation again. But again, we're dealing with God dealing with nations as well as individuals. Uh, And the truth of the matter is, uh, it, it is comforting, it is hopeful to know that God's promises ultimately cannot fail. And what I like most about this, and if if you're a person that underlines your Bible, you've got to underline the first few words of 31 verse 17, there is hope in your future, says the Lord. That is a great word of encouragement for every believer at any time of your life. Today, no matter what you're going through, there is hope for your future. Your entire future on the earth may be grim, There may be nothing to look forward to. You you might have gone to the doctor on Friday to get the final diagnosis that this is it. They've done everything that they can do. This promise is applicable to you. There is hope in your future. And you realize it is only for the believer. The billions of non-believers, they have no hope in their future. They have a certain future apart from Christ. It's a terrifying, horrible future. But no matter what you're going through, no matter what you ever face this side of eternity, there is hope in your future because Jesus Christ has gone to build a place for you, a mansion in heaven, and he has promised to come back for you. And he who has promised cannot fail. Verse 18, I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastened me and I was chastened like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning, I repented and after I was instructed, I struck myself on the thigh. I was ashamed, even humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For though I spoke against him, I earnestly remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, says the Lord. Set up signposts, make landmarks, set your heart toward the highway, the way in which you went. Turn back, O virgin of Israel, turn back to these your cities. How long will you gad about, you backsliding daughter? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth, a woman shall encompass a man. Now, these verses are telling us that God's discipline was necessary, and in the case of Israel, it would prove effective at bringing about a change of heart, a repentance in the future. When it says a woman shall encompass a man, the idea here is that God throughout history has been courting Israel, has been the husband to Israel, betrothed to Israel, and she as a wife has not wanted to have anything to do with him for large portions of her history, but in the end, she will seek him out as well, and they will have the relationship that God always intended. And so again, I point out, no matter how far they strayed, no matter how great their sin, In his everlasting love, God always drew them back and he will in the future draw them back to himself. These next four verses say the same thing about the southern kingdom of Judah uh, to whom Jeremiah was writing. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, they shall again use this speech in the land of Judah and in its cities when I bring back their captivity. The Lord bless you, O home of justice and mountain of holiness, and there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all its cities together, farmers and those going out with flocks, for I have satiated the weary soul and have replenished every sorrowful soul. Despite their idolatry, their harlotry, their oppression of the poor, their injustices, even their child sacrifices, God will draw them back to himself in his everlasting love. Verse 26, after this I awoke and looked around and my sleep was sweet to me. 
were to understand that God spoke this to Jeremiah in a dream. It was a word of prophecy conveyed to him in a dream. Everlasting love is love that never gives up, that is always drawing us to God and when necessary back to God through the loving kindness of discipline. As a play on words, I called God's love drawsome. Truth is, Jesus said on the cross that he would draw all men to himself. It's John 12, 32. It doesn't mean that everyone will eventually be saved. I wish that were true. Don't you, in your heart of hearts? Don't you wish that universalism was true, that every person ever conceived would be saved in the end? That's not what it means when Jesus said, I will draw all men to myself. He was talking about the cross as the central event of human history by which all men for all time, whosoever will believe, could be saved. The cross makes all the difference because there Jesus died for the sins of the world and then he rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. And he says, I will draw all attention to the cross, all men to myself. And those who believe, whosoever will believe, they will be saved. And so he draws all men in that sense. Now, if we're looking at Israel and then Judah and we're seeing how they go through these cycles of sin and then God drawing them back, we might say something that uh, was uh, a criticism of grace in the New Testament. People would say, well, then we might as well sin that grace might abound. If God is always drawing us back to himself, if, if he did it with Israel, he'll do it with us, so why not just sin and enjoy ourselves so that his grace will abound? And the answer to that is, may it never be. And for one thing, just on a practical level, God's drawing back isn't pleasant. It wasn't for Israel in the past and it won't be in the future. I mean, you understand, God says, I'm gonna draw you back to myself. Here's how I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna invade you by the Assyrian Empire. A lot of you are gonna be killed but in the end, it's gonna be effective. Here's how I'm gonna draw you back to myself. Babylon is coming, gonna destroy my city and they'll burn my temple and take all my implements and you're gonna be carried away captive for 70 years. You're gonna sit there by the rivers of Babylon weeping, but it's gonna be effective. And so anybody who thinks I can sin, God will forgive me, I'll sin that grace might abound, anybody who does that is an imbecile. Because God says, yeah, I'm going to draw you back or at least attempt to draw you back to myself, but it's not gonna be pretty. And many individuals here in this fellowship have the testimony of being severely backslidden and God did draw them back, but the consequences sometimes have lasted their entire life. By the time they responded to God's drawing discipline, a lot of terrible things had happened to them and to those that loved them. You can even resist God's drawing, obviously, because he's given us free will. You can resist it for your entire life if you're stubborn enough, but he will nevertheless be after you to restore you. That's what everlasting love is. God says, I love you too much to let you go. I am after you. And God doesn't just want you. He wants the best for you, and that's why in verses 27 through 40, we see that his everlasting love desires to fill you and keep on filling you. In the remaining verses, we're going to encounter what is called the new covenant, and it's pretty cool. And so verse 27, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to throw down, to destroy and to afflict, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, says the Lord. 
When he says he's going to sow them with the seed of man and beast, it means they're going to be increased in population and their livestock is going to uh, explode. It means they're going to be prosperous. But their sin and refusal to repent made it necessary first for him to pluck up, break down, throw down, destroy, and afflict them. And that would be a great subtitle to any uh, documentary about Israel that they have been plucked up, broken down, thrown down, destroyed, and afflicted. You and I might look at that and say, that's harsh. God's dealings with Israel are harsh. How would it be if God had let Israel and Judah go their way without discipline? Well, they'd have long ago passed off the pages of history and all of the promises of God that came to Abraham through the Jews would have failed. No Jews, no Jesus. No Christ, no Christmas. You understand, God said to Abraham, here's what I'm gonna do through your descendants. He made unconditional promises that he would bless the entire world with the possibility of salvation, the Savior, Jesus Christ. You and I might look at God's dealings with the Jews and say, man, that's harsh. But I am confident in saying that it was no more necessary than it had to be in order to turn their hearts back to him where they needed to be. God, you know, won't go one step further than he needed to, but since he is the only one who can discern between the soul and the spirit and really understand hearts, when I look at the nation of Israel, I have to believe that God's discipline was exactly necessary to bring them to the point they are right now in history, and it will be necessary in the future to bring them to the point they will be at the return of Jesus Christ. You see, Israel is back in their land, are they not? But they're, they're not believers in Jesus Christ. They still haven't figured out that Jesus was and is the promised Messiah. And if they thought that the Assyrian invasion was difficult or that the Babylonian captivity was harsh or that all of the other sufferings throughout their history have been difficult or that the Holocaust was something terrible, which it was, all you have to do is read Revelation 6 through 19 and see the description of the great tribulation which even Jesus said, there's never been a time like it and there never will be again. If God hadn't stepped in, all the earth would be destroyed. And you look at it and you say, what's the point of it? The point of it is that because of stubborn, rebellious hearts, that's what it's going to take to end up with a group of Jews at the end of that time who look upon their Messiah and see him whom they have pierced and be saved. And all Israel will be saved. And so God, you know, people say, well, what is God doing? Why doesn't he step in? He's doing everything he can. You and I, the nation of Israel, individuals, we are stubborn and rebellious. Everything would be wonderful if you'd just receive Christ as your savior. God's done everything, hasn't he? He died on the cross, he rose from the dead. It's all of grace. You don't have to do anything but believe. And people say, I don't want anything to do with that. And you see the state and the condition that the world is in. And so God keeps moving in and through history to draw people to himself because the alternative is terrifying. The alternative is to be separated from God for eternity, a Christless eternity in hell. And so God steps in and he draws. 
In his everlasting love, although they have been scattered and oppressed, God has preserved them and will build and plant them again. And as I've indicated, God's already gone a long way towards fulfilling that since they are a nation again. God is setting the stage to fulfill what is going to be called in a minute the new covenant. Verse 29, in those days they shall say no more, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Now apparently this was a proverb around the time of Jeremiah. As Jeremiah was urging the people to repent, they would say basically, um, God's holding us responsible for our father's sins so there's nothing we can do, so why repent? Let's just keep on sinning. Uh, And it's a kind of a crazy logic that sinners always have. Uh, A lot of people, when they're confronted with sin, they say, well, it's not my fault. Whose fault is it? It's my parents' fault. It's my boss's fault. I blame Obama. (laughs) It's a favorite line of mine. Uh... Or there's a syndrome. There's always a syndrome that you can blame it on. Now, I don't want to offend anybody who might have a real syndrome, so I'll I'll use one that I think is a little bit skeptical. SAD, sudden anger disorder. It's a real diagnosis that real, semi-real doctors give you. What are its symptoms? I get suddenly angry and can't control myself. I have sudden anger disorder. That used to just be sin and you were an idiot. But now it's a syndrome. Now you understand if it's a syndrome, you're not responsible for it. It's, it's, it's in your genes. You can't help it. There's nothing you can do except take really strong medication or move to Washington or Colorado. <laughs> Where there's a dramatic decline in sudden anger disorder. But... Um, Do you understand what I'm saying? So people, they just blame it on somebody else. So, you know, the Lord is reminding them that they deserve what is coming and God is going to hold them each accountable. Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. If you want to blame your parents and say we're sinning because of all that, you know, that happened with my parents and the old covenant, God says, okay, I've got a new covenant for you that is going to supersede the covenant that I made with Israel at Mount Sinai, which we call the law or the law of Moses. For our purposes, we can call it the old covenant because God says there's going to be this new covenant. Israel broke the law over and over, but in his everlasting love, God continued to be faithful to them. He says, like a husband who stays true even though his wife is constantly committing adultery. God said, I gave you the covenant, you broke it, you broke it, you broke it, but I stayed true to you, but here's what's gonna happen. In the future, I'm gonna make a brand new covenant with you. Verse 33, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so number one, God says, in the new covenant, I will internalize the law in a way that gives every believer the empowering to obey my standards. 
The Jews were constantly under a burden to try to interpret and follow the law of Moses. There were hundreds of rules and several schools of thought on how to follow them. We sometimes use the Sabbath as an example. The the Jews were to keep the Sabbath, but they couldn't agree on what that meant. If you really wanna have fun sometime, just Google how do I keep the Sabbath or something like that, and you'll see crazy Sabbath rules about what you can and can't do, how far you can travel, and how you can get around certain things. Uh, One of the ladies here in the church, a young gal here in the church last week came up to me and she says, hey, I don't know if you've ever encountered this before, but we found it fascinating. Their oven at home uh, broke. It wouldn't turn back on. They had the repairman come out. They didn't know this, but they had an oven that had a Sabbath mode. This is for real. This is a real thing. I heard about this before, but I'd forgotten about it. They have ovens that have a Sabbath mode. You set it, and then from sundown Friday through sundown Saturday, it will not turn on because it's illegal for Jews, it's unlawful for Jews, according to the Mosaic law, they say, to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And so they can't allow themselves to cook or have their stove come on. And so Kenmore or Maytag or whoever came up with the idea that you can have a Sabbath range. And uh, so it takes care of that for you. This is how crazy it is to try and keep the law. And so when God comes to a Jew and says, guess what? You're not gonna have to do any of that anymore because you will just know in your heart and mind exactly what I want you to do in every situation. This was enough to stun you. This is like being hit by a spiritual taser. And this is crazy if you're a Jew. And just when you're trying to figure that out, he says in verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, if you're a Jew and you read this, the people who taught you were the priests when they weren't serving in the temple. They were scattered throughout the land and they taught you God's statutes. And so when they're told, when you're a Jew and you're told you're not gonna have any teachers anymore, it meant there's no more priests, no more priesthood. But everybody will have the knowledge of the Lord. And then you're thinking, wait a minute, if there's no more priests, who's gonna offer a sacrifice for my sin? Who's gonna mediate between me and God when there's no more priests? And God says, well, I've got that covered because I'm gonna forgive your sin and remember it no more. You know, the Jew had to constantly offer for their sin once a year, the Day of Atonement. God says, yeah, that's all gonna end because I'm gonna forget all of your sins, past, present, and future, one time forever. This is just enough information to understand that God was going to do away with the entire system which only temporarily covered sins and required the continual sacrifice of animals as your substitute. And the question is, what would replace it? Not what, but who. You and I have the benefit of hindsight and the completed Bible. We know that Jesus Christ would offer himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would be the one final offering for sin that perfectly satisfied God's holiness. His death and resurrection put into place this new covenant of grace. Faith in him brings the other two benefits of the new covenant, immediate access to God with no human mediator and the internal power to walk with God. Now, although the ultimate fulfillment of the new covenant is for Israel at the second coming of Jesus Christ, the church today is already experiencing it. 
The Jews rejected it when they rejected Jesus, but in his death and resurrection, Jesus inaugurated the new covenant, whether they like it or not. So God has put his dealings with the nation of Israel as a nation on hold, but he says, this is the only deal now. There is no choosing between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old has been fulfilled and superseded by the new, and so when people get saved today, they become benefactors of the new covenant. We have immediate access to God without a mediator. We have the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins and we enjoy the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to empower us to obey God. These are radical, awesome things that have come upon us, the church. Verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night? Who disturbs the sea and its waves roar? The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if heaven above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. You get that? God says, I want you to look at creation the power and the glory and the majesty of creation and when there is no more sunrise and when the tides fail and when you can measure the heaven, there's no app for that, but when you can measure the heavens, then my promises to Israel might fail. It's a very strong statement that God's promises to Israel will never fail. So many people even in the church for centuries, thought that God had abandoned Israel. If you read uh, Christian literature, commentaries and such, up until uh, the 1940s especially, but even today in some denominations, they still tell you that God is through with Israel as a nation. When he mentions Israel, he means the church. And then I look at them and I say, has the sun failed to rise? Are the tides out of control? Have we finished measuring the heavens? Because God said that's when he would be done with the nation of Israel. You realize that if God's promises fail, even one of them, to the ethnic nation of Israel, to the descendants of Abraham, the physical descendants of Abraham, then none of his promises can be trusted. God absolutely is dealing with the Jews as any sane individual can see. Verse 38, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. The city shall be built for the Lord. From the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, the surveyor's line shall again extend straight forward over the hill Gareb. It shall turn uh, toward Goath and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate towards the east shall be holy to the Lord. It shall not be plucked or thrown down anymore forever. Again, looking to the kingdom of God on earth, Jerusalem will be the capital, not just of Israel, but of the world at the return of Jesus. You know, today there's wrangling and arguments about the real capital of Israel and and people say it's not Jerusalem. God says, yeah, Jerusalem's the capital of the world. And when Jesus rules and reigns, when David sits on the throne at Jerusalem for that thousand years coming in the future, all the world will know it. These things are set in stone. Whatever happens on planet Earth, whether it's tomorrow or 100 years from now, 
These promises cannot fail or else God is not God. A major benefit of the new covenant, as we've seen, is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right now, today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. In his everlasting love, God desires to fill you with himself, and we read in the New Testament, he goes on filling you. You can live the Christian life. Maybe you're struggling today in some area, emotionally, spiritually, physically. You can live the Christian life. And when you consider you have immediate access to the throne of God and you have the assurance that every sin is forgiven at the cross, you want to live the Christian life. This is the only way to be motivated. You cannot be properly motivated by guilt. You can be motivated by guilt. We could guilt you into giving or into serving or into all of these different things, but we don't want to. We want to motivate you by giving you a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't want to serve the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, with all your time, talent, and treasure, then you don't see the Lord for who he truly is. You don't understand or it hasn't grasped you that your sins have been forgiven and that you can go to God at any moment and that uh, you are filled with God the Holy Spirit and you know if you yield to him exactly what to do and what to say in every situation. That should be motive enough and that's why Paul said in the New Testament it's the only reasonable thing to do to give your life a living sacrifice and serve the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.